The Recipes for Life podcast is a conversation about my favourite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanded consciousness. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Rangan Chatterjee is a medical doctor with over 16 years of experience who treats his patients as individuals. He takes a 360-degree approach to health by focusing on his four pillars of health, food, movement, sleep, and relaxation. He's also the star of the hit BBC One series, Doctor in the House. To find out more about Rangan, visit drchatterjee.com. That's D-R-C-H-A-T-T-E-R-J-E-E.com. Rangan, so good to have you onto the podcast, mate. How have you been? Pete, yeah, I'm really good, thanks, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a while since we uh, caught up, and we actually had dinner while we were together at a conference in Colorado about a year and a half, two years ago, which was great. We went skiing, and uh, I cooked you a roast chicken with broth, and uh, you had dinner around the table with my two daughters as well. It was uh, it was a wonderful way to get to know each other. Hey, I, re- I remember it well, actually. And do you know, my, my fondest memory, apart from meeting you and your kids, was um, seeing how you did all those roasted vegetables in the oven that you were putting garlic in, you were putting uh, leeks in, and you know you were putting all kinds of what I call prebiotic foods in that nourish our gut bugs in, into the oven at the same time as cooking all the other veg. And that's something I've implemented into my sort of daily cooking practice since then, probably directly because of what I saw you do. So thank you for that. Awesome. <laughs> it was my pleasure. So uh, let's do a little bit of an introduction for the listeners to get to know who Rangan Chatterjee is, because you are a medical doctor and you've just released a book called The Four Pillar Plan. I'd love everyone to know your history, what type of doctor you are, what you're doing at the moment with your BBC TV series as well, and what your book is about. And I think that's going to take us through this whole podcast, basically. So uh, over to you, doctor. Yeah, Pete, you know, where to start, really? So I guess the first thing I should say is I'm a medical doctor. I've been you know, I've been practicing medicine for 16 and a half years now. So during that time, I've seen tens of thousands of patients. And I've, I've been on a little bit of a journey, really, because I started off at medical school. I did an immunology degree as well as my medical degree. I was starting to, to be a uh, my trend to become a medical specialist. And so I did all my exams to become a specialist. I was working in kidney medicine. And you know, for me, something didn't feel quite right. I didn't want to just specialize in one area of the body because I felt intuitively that the whole body's connected and I want to spend my career seeing everything and see how all the different symptoms and different parts of the body interact. So despite having done a lot of training and qualifications for becoming a specialist, I then decided to move to being a generalist or a GP. And, you know, my dad, who's a conventional medical doctor who came over from India to the UK in the 60s, you know, he was a little bit shocked that his son was moving from being a specialist to becoming a GP. But I thought, hey, dad, you know, that's just what I want to do in medicine. I want to see everything. So then moved to general practice. I was seeing everything. I'm seeing all kinds of different problems. But I really had this 
this slight disconnect with what I was being told, how I was being told to practice, and what I intuitively felt was the right way of practicing. And I'll tell you, one, one, one patient really, you know, really comes to mind for me. It was in my first week as a GP. I remember maybe two or three days in, um, this, this young lady came in. She was complaining of a very low mood. She was down. She was depressed. And, you know, she wanted to go on antidepressants. I was, what, three days into my, you know, my, my job as a GP. And I thought, oh, this doesn't feel right. I don't really know what's going on here. I don't really feel I should be prescribing her something. And so I said to her, hey, look, you know, I'm pretty tight on time today. Can you come in tomorrow morning at the end of my morning surgery? I could spend a little bit longer with you. And, you know, basically, to cut a long story short, she came in the next day. I spoke to her for about 20 minutes, got to know her. I, don't, I, I didn't quite know what I needed to do next, but I knew that I didn't feel that a medication was the right answer. So I said, hey, look, let's, you know, let's, can you come in every week? Can I get to know you, figure out what's going on? Uh, and basically, bit by bit, over four to six weeks, I would see her every week, just for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, get to know her. Uh, I realized that actually just her coming to see me and talk to me, somebody independent of her family, of her friends, you know, like someone completely third party independent, that had therapeutic value hmm. in itself. And, you know, the next few months, got her considerably better. Now, this was, what, about eight, nine years ago, okay? Actually, 10 years ago, this was. I have considerably upskilled since then, but I just knew that was just something else that I could be doing as a doctor for a lot of these patients. And then, you know, the turning point for me was, you know, maybe two or three years after that, my, my son, who... Uh, was six months old at the time. My son, basically my wife and I had gone to Chamonix in France for a holiday and my, my son stopped moving. Uh, his arms went back. Uh, my wife screamed out to me. I thought he might be choking on mucus and phlegm because he had a slight cold. I turned him onto his back. I tried to clear his airway. I couldn't. I froze. And my wife said, look, we've got to get to the hospital. And you know, we drove to the hospital. I nearly killed us all because it had just snowed there. And I nearly turned the car over in my panic. My son, you could see the doctors were really, really worried. They didn't know what was going on. He, he had two lumbar punctures. And, you know, the reality is he was in a foreign hospital for five nights. We nearly lost him that night. And what transpired is that he had no calcium in his blood. And that was secondary to having no vitamin D in his body. Wow. And... The reality of this was, I, I had to come to terms with the fact that A, I've nearly lost my son. B, this is a preventable vitamin deficiency that his dad, with an immunology degree, with a training to be a specialist, with training to be a generalist, with such a wide, varying medical education, I was unable to prevent that in my son. And you know, that, that, that actually caused a lot of guilt for me, which I'm finally letting go of. Um, but it drove me to find out what is going on here. Modern medicine saved his life in that acute moment. Mm. But no one then taught me, well, look, if he's not had vitamin D in, for the last few months in his system, his immune system development will be suboptimal. And I thought, well, you know what? No one's telling me what to do here. I'm going to figure it out myself. And I basically was on a mission to get my son back to optimal health as if this had never happened. And I'm very pleased to say today he's a seven and a half year old. He's thriving and he's in fantastic health. Fantastic. Very long-winded answer, Pete, I'm afraid. But um, <laughs> no, no, that, that's really what's got me where I am today. Well, it's fascinating because so many people have a similar story. Either it's their own health or it's their children's health that, or a part of a family member or friend's health that have, I guess, opened up the doors to these possibilities. So tell me where you're at the moment. You've done a couple of series of a BBC series. Yeah. So it's, it's called Doctor in the House. I know it has been out in Australia. It's, it's been shown in 70 countries around the world. And, you know, it's, it's probably one of my proudest things that I've done in my career. Um, you know, I, I got the opportunity to make these documentaries for BBC One, which is our main channel over here. And the whole concept was what happens if you have more time with your patients? Can you deliver better results? And that was a that was a, a narrative that really resonated with me. I thought, yeah, of course you can. You know, I, and then sort of I, I applied. You know, I never had any 
and he desired to be a TV doctor. But that advert really struck a chord with me. So I picked up the phone and said, hey, what's going on here? And it essentially I had three months of interviews, about eight or nine stages. Um, I think they went through about 1,500 doctors. I never thought in a million years I'd get chosen to do it. You know, I was just, you know, I didn't prepare for a single interview because I thought, you know what, if they want me for who I am, great. If they don't, that's cool because I quite enjoy my job. And um, I ended up getting in the first series, I managed to diagnose a new patient with type 2 diabetes. She didn't know she had it. 30 days later, she no longer had blood results consistent with type 2 diabetes hmm. in just 30 days. And remarkably, and this makes me even happier, Pete, I've got a, a text message from her a few months ago. This is two years after I left her house. Yep. She still does not have type 2 diabetes. In fact, her blood sugar is better now than when I had finished with her. Awesome. And it's got to the point where, where her doctor has now said, well, I'm not sure you ever had type 2 diabetes, which is frankly ridiculous <laughs> because we've got all the documentation. And what I find incredible about that is four weeks with that family, she and her husband and her kids were empowered and they've gone on and they're now living their life in a way that is keeping their health in fantastic condition, they've not cost our National Health Service a single penny. They don't go to doctors, they don't go to the nurses, they're not having regular checks. She just went for a two-year blood test to see, hey, what's going on here? And it's even better. So, you know, type 2 diabetes. We also got menopausal symptoms better mm. in 30 days without hormones. Fibromyalgia, completely better in six weeks with one patient. Um without the use of drugs, you know, back pain, 30 year history of back pain, opiate addiction, sleeping pills, six weeks later, nothing. And again, two years on this, this gentleman has no back pain is not on any painkillers. You know, it just goes on mental health on the last series, a lady with panic attacks and anxiety. She's been under specialists under doctors and we got them 80% better in six weeks by, by making changes in her lifestyle. So the, the beautiful thing about the series, Pete, is that, I managed to showcase that despite these people having been under GPs, under specialists already for the majority of them, and I'm not criticizing those doctors, right? I think they were doing, they were honestly trying to do their best for that patient within the system and within the training that they've been given. But what I did is take a different approach, see, well, what's going on here that's causing this? And the results were truly remarkable and something I'm incredibly proud of. Hmm. So you spend a month with these patients or over a month with these patients. So what are you looking at? And does this lead into your book as well, The Four Pillar Plan? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it all really does lead into the book because what I realized, Pete, is no matter what the condition is, whether it was lack of energy, whether it was type 2 diabetes, whether it was a mental health issue, I realized that 80% of what I did with every single patient and every single family was pretty similar. It was basically looking at what I consider to be the four key areas in our lifestyle that we have control over that influence our health. Food, movement, but also sleep and relaxation. And I don't think I realized it at the time, but when I, when I reflected, I thought, Actually, 80% of what I do with these, with these patients on the, on the documentary series, but also 80% of what I do with my patients in my practice is the same. So I am looking, and this is, this is when I felt very fortunate. You know, every doctor wants more time with their patients. I got more time. I got to see how do they really eat? How much do they really move? What are they doing in the hours before bed? What are the stress levels like? Are they go, go, go the whole time? Are they having any downtime? Are they sitting on the sofa shoving fast food down their throats or are they sitting around a table with a home-cooked meal? And I'm telling you, and as you well know, Pete, it's the simple things that you can do in your everyday lifestyle that actually are achievable for every single person that make the, the, not only the, the significant differences to health, they make the sustainable differences to health. And that's why those patients from the series are still doing well now this wasn't a quick fix gimmick for television. This was a real life change to give those people tools and empowerment so that they can do what they need to do. And that's what I put in the book. The book is not related 
to the TV series. You know, I barely comment on it. The book is just my philosophy on how we, you know, and how we stay healthy. And this, I'm telling you, this book works for every single person. If you already have a disease or an illness, this book will help you feel better. If you want to prevent getting sick in the future, this book will help you do that. And if you simply just want more out of life every day, you want a bit more energy, a bit more vitality, this book will work for you. If you want to eat meat, this book will work for you. If you want to be vegetarian, this will work for you. And the reason I've done it like this is because I believe that everybody, every single person should have access to good quality health information that's going to help them thrive in this modern world. And that's what I've tried to do with the book. Well, congratulations with that, Rangit. Let's talk through these four uh, pillars of health. And we'll start off with what are you eating? And it's my favorite quote that uh, we featured in our documentary, The Magic Pill. And thank you for appearing in that. It's uh, when you say what every doctor should be asking their patient is, what are you eating? Yeah, I, I, st- I remember when we... Uh... I remember when we when we did that interview and I was just, you know, speaking freely to you for about an hour. And then you obviously, you you know, your editor and yourself, you cut what you needed to. And I, I saw that in the film and I thought it, it genuinely is what I feel. I think it's a it's a base level question that every single doctor should be asking their patient, because I think it, it is relevant to almost every single condition, certainly chronic conditions. It is that relevant. So something I do with my patients and so, so what I talk about in the book is I try and me- I try to make this book accessible for everyone. So when I talk about food, you know, I've got five in, in each of the pillars, in each of the four pillars, there are five chapters with five suggestions that people might want to do with their health. And the whole concept is it's balanced between the four pillars. It's not just a focus on one area. So it's not just, hey, change your diet. It's kind of like, look, maybe you don't need to be perfect in one of the pillars but you do need to pay attention to them all. So in the food pillar, the first suggestion I make is to denormalize sugar. So it's meant to be a positive suggestion, basically saying, look, you know, humans have eaten sugar in the past, right? We, we've, we, we're hardwired to crave sugar, but it would be very infrequent. So, you know, I, I know, look, I personally don't eat much sugar, but I really want to make this accessible to you. So I said, denormalize it. Okay, if you want to have a little treat every few weeks, right? Okay, fine. But don't kid yourself that the breakfast cereal you're having in the morning, the sandwich you're having at lunch, and the pasta you're having in the evening, don't kid yourself that you're not having sugar then. Because you know the, the whole idea of this is to basically have a look, start looking at labels. Sugar is lurking where you least expect it. You know, I, I went to the shop the other day to get some uh, meat and you pick up the packet and you flip it over to the back and you think, wow, why has meat got sugar in it? I, I don't really understand it. I, of course, the, the, the other five or six additives that, that are there that you don't even recognize what they are. So it's about teaching people to look at labels. I'm not here to demonize people. I want to give people information so they feel empowered to make choices that they wish to make. And, and I think denormalizing sugar, I go through the science behind it, but I also go through, it's, it's simply a case of having a look at labels. And the thing which kind of underpins the whole book, Pete, is this whole idea of controlling the environment that you can control. And I'm very passionate about this. Make your house a safe zone. When you walk out the door here, certainly in the United Kingdom, and I imagine it's similar in Australia, but you walk out the front door, temptation is everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't go into a coffee shop anymore without having to run the gauntlet of cakes, muffins, pastries, pan au chocolates. You know, and even if your willpower has said no, you get to the till and the barista now is trained to say, hey, Dr. Ch- uh, you know, so would you like a pan au chocolate with that? You know, you, you're constantly being challenged. So I'm saying don't use willpower up in the house. Nobody's saying you can never have a sweet treat, you know. But it's a case of, you know, having them, you know, know when you're having it, have it intentionally and enjoy it when you do. Don't have it every day. And, and sugar for me is simply about getting back to it being an occasional treat rather than an everyday norm. Hmm. So the first suggestion is that denormalize sugar. But then the one thing I'm really passionate about is, you know, we've got this um, public health program here called Five a Day. I don't know if you have it in Australia, you know, which frankly, has not worked very well at all, which is about people eating five 
you know, bits of fruit and veg a day. And so I've done a little take on that saying, uh, my, my five a day is five different vegetables of different colors, if you can, every single day. And I really go into gut health and the science behind gut health and how these different colors, these different vegetables, they nourish our gut bugs, which nourishes the rest of our body. And I think people are going to find this bit quite interesting. So I really, I really sort of delve into the immune system, our gut health and our food and this little triad there and how those three things interact. And, and you know, for people who want the science, it's there, but also the suggestions and the interventions are very straightforward. If you don't want the science, that's okay. Some people don't want it. They just want to know, hey, what should I do? Hmm. So I try and give them practical tools as to how they can do that. Another one of the suggestions is basically about, you know, a 12-hour fast every day or what I call a micro fast. And it's it's about saying in every 24-hour period, see if you can have 12 hours without putting any food into your mouth. And actually, you know, we should be maybe sleeping for a good seven, eight hours of those 12 hours. And I find most people can achieve that. And, you know, we know that your immune system function improves. You can get better blood sugar control. Your mitochondrial function, mitochondria, your body's energy factories, their function improves. You know, you can sleep better when that happens. And the, the interesting on this point, people are going to say, well, yeah, okay, I can do 12 hours, but do I get additional benefit from 10 hours? And here's the point of the book. The point of the book is, if you have done 12 hours, you've restricted your eating to like 8am till 8pm, you know what? Yeah, you could maybe get more benefit from making that 10 hours. But I say in the book, you know what? 12 hours is enough for you. Move on to another suggestion. The whole idea is not about maxing out in one area. It's about these little small changes in each area of your health that over time build up these these new changes become your new habits and these new habits become your health. So those are just some of the suggestions I make in the eat pillar. Where do we go next? Into movement? Yeah, we could go into movement. I actually start the book, interestingly enough, Pete, with the relaxation pillar. Can I just tell you why I do that? Would that be okay? Tell me, please. Yeah, I think Food, movement, I think intuitively we, we've, we've heard that over and over again, that these things are critical for our health. And, and clearly they are, and I go into them in, in, in real depth in the book. But there's two other components, two other really key components to health, which is relaxation and sleep. And I genuinely believe that our modern lives, the way we're living our lives these days, they're so full on. You know, our to-do lists are never ending. We've got so many things to do, work. There's no boundary anymore between work life and home life. We've got emails, tweets, Facebook, Instagram. We've got all these things to do that we never used to have to do. And I think it's taken its toll. And I think people these days need permission to relax. And and, and the reason I started with relaxation, I think arguably that's one of the most undervalued components of health. And this is the whole stress piece. You know, modern lives are stressful. So I make some simple suggestions how, look, I can't remove somebody's stress. If their job is busy, if they've got, you know, elderly parents they're looking after, they've got kids that they're trying to juggle their work, their kids, all the other things that they have to do. So I've come up with some simple strategies that people can adopt in their daily life to actually help them de-stress. And I go through some case studies, some quite remarkable case studies where the simplest of interventions in relaxation have had a profound impact on someone's health. And I'll tell you one of them. It was a, a lady in her 40s who had uh, something called Crohn's disease. It's an inflammatory bowel disease, you know, very, very debilitating autoimmune disease, um, a lot of stomach issues, a lot of diarrhea. And she wasn't getting anywhere with her specialist. She was incredibly frustrated. It was having a huge impact on her life. And when I started seeing her, you know, as usual, I, I made changes to her diet. And, and we got, you know, we got a little bit of an improvement, but, you know, it plateaued. I didn't get as much of an improvement as I thought. I was thinking, well, what's going on here? What am I missing? She came to see me one day and I thought, you know what? This lady never stops. She's looking after her kids. She's looking after her husband. She's go, go, go all day, every day. She doesn't do anything for herself. And I thought, well, I know that stress and cortisol negatively impacts our gut health. She has a problem in her gut. So I said, hey, you know what? Let's try something different. 
I'm going to give you a lifestyle prescription and I wrote it out for it. Mm-hmm. I want you to have 15 minutes of me time every day. So 15 minutes, you don't have your phone with you. You do something every day that you love. You can go for a walk. You can put on your favorite piece of music. I don't care what it is, but it's got to be something you do for you by yourself. And it's without your phone. And she said, okay. And I said, I also want you to do something for one hour a week that you love. And she, she said, really? That's it, doctor? Hmm. I said, yeah, just honestly, trust me, please. Let's try this approach. And she was very, very skeptical. She said, what about supplements? What about anything else in my diet? I said, look, honestly, I think your diet is good enough. Let's not worry about that at the moment. Do this. She came back four weeks later and her symptoms on an objective symptom questionnaire had gone down by 50%. Wow. 50%. Well, I've not got rid of her condition. Well, I'm not making any claim that I've got rid of it. I'm simply saying that the body is interconnected. And food is a very important part of the picture, but it's one part of the picture. And for her, her stress levels were negatively impacting her. You know, that is achievable for every single person. That doesn't cost any money for anyone. That is something that is accessible and available to everybody. And that's why I started off the book with a relaxation pillar, because I think it's the one that I struggle with the most. And I think many people, you know, in 2018 struggle with as well. Well, I guess it's it's self-love. It's about taking that uh, first step to nourish yourself wholly and solely. You can self-love and and self-nourish through food and through sleep and through movement. But actually, I love what you're saying there is do something for yourself that you love to do. And uh, it doesn't get any simpler than that. And I think it is a wonderful thing to start your book with and a wonderful thing to prescribe, as you, as you said. Well, it is, and I know you, you're a big fan of gratitude. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the third suggestion is about keeping a gratitude journal. And I think people are going to be maybe surprised and shocked with how simple this is, basically. You know, it's, it's, it's a very achievable plan for everybody. And that's what, you know, I want this book to change thousands and thousands of lives. I really believe it can do because it's achievable. And, you know, I, I talk about in the gratitude journal, I talk about the science behind it. And I share with the readers something that I do in my house. And actually, it's a little tip I learned from the, the Olympic strength coach in America, Charles Poliquin, who I met a few years ago for dinner when he was lecturing in Manchester. And he told me what he does with his, with his daughter. I thought, wow, that sounds amazing. And basically, it's three questions that you ask each other every day. And we do it in the evening around the dinner table. We sit down, put the phones off. You know, often, you know, this time of year in the UK, it's very dark. We often put candles on and dim light. So they have dinner together. And we ask each other, we all have to answer these three questions. Firstly, what have you done today to make somebody else happy? What has somebody else done today to make you happy? And what have you learned today? Hmm. And if I'm honest, I thought initially, hey, this is great for the kids. You know, this is really, really good for the kids. And actually, I found out that actually it's fantastic for me and my wife as well. We get so much out of it. It really helps you, you know, reflect positively on what has happened in your life. It helps you connect with your family. Uh, And, you know, it's amazing how it just shifts your mindset day in, day out. So I think these are little things that... Everyone's looking for the magic bullet, but for most of us, there ain't no magic bullet. It's just the way that we're living our lives. Hmm. I love it. I really do love it. Let's take a step back to food as well, because when I met you, you were a guest speaker at the Low Carb uh, Summit, and you did a wonderful speech there as well about low carb and and also about the um, prebiotics that we have in our guts. And uh, where is that now? Because we're a couple of years down the track from uh, when I listened to your last last talk. Where are you at with patients? Are you do you prescribe a, a lower carbohydrate diet these days? Do you talk about getting the good bugs happening for their guts? Where is it at the moment in twenty eighteen for Rankin Chatterjee? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Pete, because my practice as a doctor continually evolves. And I'm sure in five years' time, if we're having an interview, it will be very, it may be different again, because I'm always learning. I'm very open-minded, and I learn mostly from my patients and the mm. feedback they give me, because that tells me what works and what doesn't work. And so, yeah, my, my thinking has evolved somewhat. And, and I'll tell you where I'm at today. I don't believe that there is one true diet for everyone. 
I think we have to look around at all these different cultures around the world and recognize that many different cultures eat in many different ways and it can still be healthy. But what is consistent amongst all these different cultures who seem to have high rates of longevity, like the blue zones, for example, these areas around the world where people live to a ripe old age in very good health. And actually, you know, some are vegetarian, some eat meat, um, but, but remarkably, there are some consistencies and none of them has a processed food culture. You know, by and large, they're eating unprocessed local produce. Mm-hmm. They all sit down, they eat meals together. They're not sort of rushing in and eating on the go. They eat locally in what's in season. They do have treats, but at very special times, such as, you know, Christmas and Easter, they don't have treats every day after school or every Friday. And that really has shaped what I, what I view, you know, my viewpoint on food. So my biggest thing with food is to make it unprocessed. And one of the suggestions I make in the book is how you unprocess your diet. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that is the key because unprocessed food generally nourishes our gut microbiome. So what do I do about carbs? Well, you know, I, 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 I've never been a huge fan of the term low carb and I'll tell you why, because We've obviously demonized fat for a long period of time. And I think we run the risk of doing that with carbs as well if we just use a broad term like that. So I personally prefer the term a diet low in refined and processed carbohydrates. That's just me, okay, that's on a personal level. Mm-hmm. And I use different diets for different people. So yeah, for a type 2 diabetic or for someone with prediabetes or I'm suspicious of insulin resistance, I will quite dramatically reduce how many refined and processed carbohydrates they're having. In some cases, you know, in the short term, I do even cut things like, you know, I ask them to reduce even things like sweet potatoes for a few weeks while I'm just trying to get on top of where they're at. Yep. But, you know, I tend to try and put those things back in as soon as possible because I think they do nourish our gut bugs. And, and I've got some patients who do very well on moderate amounts of carbohydrates and some people who do well on low carbohydrates. So I kind of, I think it's more about the quality. Basically, right, in in the modern Western world, I think the bulk of the junk that we're eating is refined and processed carbohydrates. So therefore, if you're going on on a conventional sort of low carb diet, is it the fat that you're cutting the carbs or is it the fat that you're cutting out most of the junk? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer, but I know that some people, like in Okinawa, right, they have a diet, 80%, we think, of, you know, in carbohydrates, primarily purple sweet potatoes are their carbohydrate source. Yet they have no insulin resistance. They have no type 2 diabetes. But they're also very active. Hmm. They're also well slept. They also don't have much stress. So I argue in the book, could it be in the West, in the, in the Western world today, where we are underslept, we're overworked, we're overstressed, we're physically inactive. Could it be in this environment where one of these sort of low-carb type diets has a potentially unique and beneficial role? I, it's just, you know, my, my think is always evolving because I, I, I think we have to understand, well, why do some of these high-carb populations do well? And then I think, well, as a, you know, try, trying to look at this rationally, there must be something else. And actually, my, my, my own feeling is that it's our gut health. I think if you're eating a diet that nourishes your gut health, you know, lots of colorful foods that feed our gut bugs, I think that's the key. But yeah, I do use a low-carb approach with some patients. You know, and you know, that lady I spoke to you about who I reversed her type 2 diabetes, yeah, I dramatically reduced her refined and processed carbohydrates for a few weeks. But interestingly enough, as I've now fixed her insulin resistance, which is ultimately the, the cause of type 2 diabetes in most patients, and insulin resistance is not just caused by diet. It's also caused by lack of sleep, increased stress levels, low vitamin D levels, disturbed gut microbiome, you know, an imbalance in your gut bugs. I have fixed all those factors with her, and now she can tolerate plenty of sweet potatoes, plenty of pastas, plenty of carrots, you know, even some rice sometimes she can tolerate, without spiking her blood sugar, because we fixed the underlying cause of the problem. Did that make sense? Did I, did I explain that clearly enough? 
Yeah, perfect. So we've got two other pillars in your book, and then I want to talk about modern medicine and where we are in 2018. So let's talk about sleep and movement, and, and you can choose which one you feel is more relevant to talk about first. Yeah, okay. I, I think, you know, so we don't run out of time. Let me go with sleep, because I think, you know, I'm very, very pro-movement, and we'll come to that if I've got time. But but sleep, I think, is very much, along with relaxation, I think one of the most undervalued things in our modern, in our modern, in our modern lives, and I think we've got to be very clear: we are in the middle of a sleep deprivation epidemic. You know, we've got so many distractions, but we also live in this "sleep is for wimps" culture that you know that associates this basically natural and critical bodily function with laziness. You know, scientists from Oxford University reckon that we might be getting one to two hours less sleep per night than we did sixty years ago. And in the context of an eight-hour sleep cycle, that could be 25% less sleep. That is absolutely remarkable. And if we think about what sleep does, and there's this great quote from this guy called Dr. Alan Rishtafen. He's He's a legendary sleep researcher, and I love it. And he says, basically, if sleep does not serve an absolutely vital function, then it is the biggest mistake that evolutionary process has ever made. And I think that really sums it up <laughs> right there. Because, you know, when we sleep better, we have short-term benefits, right? We've got better energy, better concentration, better capacity to learn, a better ability to function, you know, better relationships. But long-term, you know, it increases our life expectancy, reduces our risk of being overweight, reduces our risk of developing type 2 diabetes, reduce risk of developing Alzheimer's, right? These are really important critical factors, when we sleep, in Alzheimer's, we've got a protein called beta amyloid protein that accumulates in our brain. But we now know that when we sleep, we clear out beta amyloid from our brain. It's truly remarkable what goes on when we sleep. And actually, some of my type 2 diabetic patients, when their diet is good and I can't shift their blood sugar, it's either normally stress or sleep. You get those things right, suddenly their blood sugar starts to come into control because the whole body is interconnected. And here's the point with sleep, Pete. The point with sleep is, yes, there are primary sleep disorders like obstructive sleep apnea. But I've got to tell you, in the majority of patients I've seen over 16 and a half years of seeing patients, people who can't sleep, the majority of us are doing something in our daily lifestyles that is untraining our natural innate ability to sleep. So really the book is about showcasing to people what are those factors? What might they be doing without realizing it that's impacting their sleep? And I think it's almost always possible to get someone sleeping. Not always, but almost always, I think, because it's usually something in their lifestyle. So you can use light, you know, you have it just simply having a dark bedroom. Is it, it's just incredible what that does. It almost mimics camping. You know, most people can sleep very well when they go camping, but you bring them into the modern world where there's distractions, there's lights. These are the things that often are getting in the way of sleep. So I go through so many practical suggestions that have helped myself, but have also helped my patients. One of my favorite is what I've called the no-tech 90, this concept that for 90 minutes before bed, you have, you know, you're not looking at any technology at all. And, and you know, uh, I know you know this, Pete, but it's about that whole idea that melatonin in the evening is one of the hormones that our body produces to help us fall asleep. Well, the blue lights that we get from these devices actually reduces how much melatonin we're going to secrete. So let's think about this for a minute. If we had a drug on the market that was going to change our hormone levels, we'd be raving about it or we'd be saying, this is ridiculous. You know, this is very, very toxic. Yet we're using a drug like that every single day in our lives. Now, look, I'm not anti-technology. I mean, we're doing this, you know, we're doing this interview on technology. I'm, I'm the whole, you know, what underpins this book also in many of the pillars is let's use technology in a way that it helps us rather than enslaves us and harms us. And I think it's just a case of, you know, we all love so many of these new modern techie things that, are, you know, that, that, are, that have really come in the last 10 years, the last 15 years but we haven't quite figured out how to use them in a way that actually helps us rather than harms us. And I think sleep is one of those factors that it, that it impacts. But there's even suggestions like, you know, the second suggestion in sleep is to embrace morning light. 
So this whole concept that if you go outside in the morning and you expose yourself, you're short in Australia to the sun, here in the UK to the clouds, um, but you expose yourself to that natural light, you help set your body's circadian rhythm and that alone can help you sleep better in the evening. You know, what you do in the morning can impact what you do in the evening because the whole body is interconnected. And I hope you're, you're hearing, Pete, that these suggestions are pretty simple, right? They're pretty simple to implement. <laughs> and, you know, it's the combination of doing these little things that actually make the difference. And so I talk about things like a bedtime routine. You know, you know you've got kids. You know, we know kids need a, a bedtime routine to wind down in the evening. Why do we as adults think that we're any different? In fact, so many of us, the reason we can't sleep is because our minds are active. We're looking at emails in bed, winding us up, you know, trying to get our to-do list done. Of course, we can't sleep after that. So, you know, that's kind of a rough overview of sleep. And then in movement, I basically try and simplify movements and just say, hey, look, one of the big problems of movement is that we've outsourced our idea of movement to the gym, as if if we get to the gym, our movement's done. We don't have to think about it anymore. We can get on with our lives until the next session. And I'm going to really challenge that with people. I want people to say, hey, you know what? We should see our whole lives as our gym. You need to look for opportunities in your everyday life to move. And I have all kinds of practical strategies. I mean, one of the favorite things I do with my patients, and they love it, is something called a five-minute kitchen workout. Because mm-hmm. I talk about strength training and how important it is, particularly as we get older. And, you know, I've just cut this video at the weekend that's going on my website to show people how can they do that five-minute kitchen workout in their own house. And I've got patients who are 80 years old doing it. I've got patients who are 20 years old doing it. Because you don't need an expensive gym membership. You don't need any equipment. You don't need any gym clothes. You don't need to get changed. You can simply have a fantastic strength workout in your kitchen. And, you know, you can just use things like bottles of olive oil, you know, cans of butter beans, whatever you need. And, you know, I know it works and it's, it it really tries to simplify how you can do this in your everyday life. And the reason I came up with it, Pete, is because I, so many of my patients said, Hey doc, you know, I know what you're telling me. I don't have time. And I said, what if I could, could you give me five minutes twice a week? So yeah, of course. So okay, let's come up with something that works in your house, five minutes, twice a week. And you know what happens? You start off low, they come back a few weeks later and they're doing it like six days a week. It becomes part of their conditioning. When they're in their kitchen, they just knock out a few press-ups. You know, take press-ups, right? If you're not strong, you could do them against the wall. Most people can manage that. You know, as you get stronger, you do it against the kitchen worktop. As you get even stronger, you do it on the chair. As you get even stronger, you can do it on the floor. There's so many variations and that's why I'm so passionate. And there's, there's plenty of tools and tips like this in the book to try and help people get moving more. Well, I love it. What I really love about it is the simplistic nature that you're putting out there and and for people to take accountability and responsibility for their own actions and that it isn't beyond themselves to be able to do this, that it's, as you mentioned, and I mentioned just then, it is very simple. So at the moment, you are promoting as a doctor, a holistic way of life, basically, and and getting back to basics, sleep, movement, relaxation, and looking at the foods that you eat. How common is this now around the globe as far as information that doctors are promoting? Do you think it's spreading? Do you think there's a resurgence? Where is it in 2018, do you believe? Look, as you can tell on social media, there is a growing movement of people around the world who are, you know, promoting that our lifestyles can be our our best medicine in many instances. I think this movement is growing in the UK. You know, it's certainly not where I would like it to be yet, but I think we're getting there. And, you know, I feel very lucky to have been part of that movement. And I know that my uh, television documentary series has made a real impact because I get a lot of contact from doctors every week asking how they can learn these tools, how they can get involved, but also really, really encouragingly, medical students. So many medical students uh, contact me and say, hey, you know, I'm not learning this stuff at medical school. I love what you're doing, but how can I learn more? And you know, I've been working really hard over the last few months to try and create something to help teach these doctors what they can be doing. And so the Royal College of GPs, which is our main body here in the UK, they have just accredited a course that I put together with some colleagues that's called Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine. 
And, you know, so I'm very, very, very proud and honored to be presenting and teaching the very first RCGP accredited lifestyle medicine course in the UK. And we're running that uh, Saturday, January the 20th in London, and there's just a huge demand for it. And so I'm, we're hoping to roll it out several times this year. And it's great because I don't think five years ago we could have done that. So I'd have to say things are moving. And I think social media actually is a big driver of this because social media has actually made health information accessible to everyone. It's no longer the preserve of universities and research institutions and doctors. Actually, People are getting their, their own health information out there. Now, are there problems with that? Yeah, there can be problems with that. But I think by and large, it's a good thing because nobody has, you know, every single person has the right to good quality health information. So I think there is a growing movement. And, and one thing I must add here, Pete, and something I feel very strongly about is that there's a lot of what I call the macronutrient wars on social media. There's a lot of quite uh, vociferous fighting about, you know, what is the best diet. But I, I prefer like to take a step back and go, look, there's a lot of people saying, and, and you know, let's say vegans, vegetarians, ancestral, paleo type eaters. Sometimes there's a bit of infighting. Well, not infighting, there's a bit of fighting on social media. And then we take a step back. I think by and large, everyone is kind of saying that many of these chronic conditions can be improved and often reversed using lifestyle. Okay, so I think that's a great starting point. Then the next question from that is, well, what is the right lifestyle to adopt? And actually, you do find within these within these different populations, I find that eighty percent of what people are saying is the same. You know, color, colorful foods, a lot of variety, a lot of diversity, lots of vegetables. These things are relatively consistent. There, there is a debate over you know meat and how much meat someone needs, and should people be eating meats? Uh, and I've got to say, my own personal view is that. A lot of my patients seem to benefit from having some good quality animal protein in their diet. That's been my experience, and I can only I can only you know talk about my experience over the last sixteen and a half years and my patient population. That's what I'm finding. But I also do have some patients who are vegetarian who are seemingly doing very well, but they do you know their vegetarianism is a ton of colourful whole foods, not the vegetarianism where it's you know, pizza, it's cookies, cakes, mm. you know, they're, they're, they're obviously there's very different ways to do it. So the, the point I'm trying to make, Pete, is that I think the times are changing. There is a lot of different voices and lots of different areas saying, hey, a lot of these, whether it's heart disease, type 2 diabetes, but I would even expand it out to things like migraines. So many migraines can be, can be made better, if not eliminated, using lifestyle. Not all of them, but many of them can can do. And you know, when I when I was on BBC News recently talking about this new course, you know, people said, "Yeah, hey doc, yeah, that's all great, but you know, we all know we should be living better, right?" And you know, what are doctors meant to do about that? And you know, I really don't agree with that. Really, doctors are not trained in this. We we have no real in depth knowledge of how we can use specific interventions with food, movement, sleep, and relaxation to influence our patient's health. We know how drugs affect our biology, right? But we don't know that the foods we choose can switch on or switch off thousands of our genes. We don't know that when we move appropriately, we increase levels of the hormone BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like, you know, it, it grows new nerve cells in our brain. We don't recognize that when we don't sleep, our cortisol levels, our adrenaline levels go up. We're more insulin resistant the next day. Or when we don't switch off and relax, you know, it affects our catecholamine levels. It affects inflammation in our body. Actually, if we knew that, we know that drugs can do that. Well, actually, there's very few drugs that can do any of that, frankly. But the point is, we don't realize how powerful our lifestyles are. That's why I've created this course, because I want to teach people. I want to try and influence the lives of a lot of people. Right? That's why I do the work that I do in the media. Everything I do is, is really about, can I influence a lot of people? The reason I did Doctor in the House, the reason I did it is I thought, you know, we know in the UK, 5 million people on average saw each show in the United Kingdom, and it's gone out to 70 different countries. So, you know, 1%, if only 1% of people made a change in their lives based upon what they saw, 
that's 50,000 people. And I reckon it's probably five to 10%. You know, it's, it's considerably more than that. Uh, you know, it could be half a million people on each show who made a difference in their lives. I don't know. But, you know, I know that that program has had an impact because I walk around and I get stopped on most days by someone who says, hey, you know, I just want to say thank you. I say, well, why, what's happened? And rather ironically, four weeks ago, it was World Diabetes Day, Pete, and I was in London and this couple stopped me and said, hey, Dr. Shashi, thank you. I said, what's happened? They said, look, I saw your show and I've read one of your blogs and both of us have reversed our type 2 diabetes based upon what we saw and what we read. So thank you. Awesome. And it, it is, it just, you feel really humbled as a human being to have that opportunity. So what's the next step for me? The next step is, can I teach doctors how to do this? And so I think, you know, look, let's be honest, we're in 2018, the Royal College of GPs have accredited a prescribing lifestyle medicine course. Pete, I think that's progress. That is fantastic, mate. We're going to wrap up the podcast because we're basically over time, but I do want to ask you one last question. What would you like to leave the listeners with as one of your main ingredients for a successful, healthy, happy recipe for life? I know we've covered diet, we've covered movement, we've covered sleep, and we've also covered relaxation, but what what is at the heart that you would love to share? Oh man, that is a hard question, Pete. That is a hard question. The heart of it is this four-pillar framework works for everyone. Look at your own life and use it as a self-assessment tool. Which of those pillars need the most work, right? Which, well, which one of those pillars needs the most work? Start there. Do something small in that area for one week and see how you feel. For me, it's relaxation. So I'm going to make a commitment to you, Pete, now. I'm really, you know, overworked at the moment. The book's coming out. I'm sort of being pulled from pillar to post. I'm going to take my own advice here. I'm going to work on the relax pillar this week. And I'm going to make sure that I've got 15 minutes of time, of me time every single day for the next week. And I'll email you to tell you how I feel. Awesome, brother. I just want to say thank you for sharing with us your, your words of wisdom and all your knowledge. And just wanted to say that we love you. And I love you and I look forward to your continued success. And I cannot wait to uh, see what you do in the future, brother. And maybe we'll have a ski again one day or a roast dinner or a soup. <laughs> well, thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me on. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. All right, mate. Thank you. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions, or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.